Let's go once more before the Lord in prayer. Our God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the hard sayings, the true sayings, the clear sayings. Lord, who is a God like you who reveals all that you require and makes yourself known to the children of man so that we might understand you, so that we might learn from you, and so we might be found in you. Lord, we pray as we open up your word now that you would be with us to strengthen us, that your spirit would guide us into truth, and that your grace would be upon us so we could understand what our hearts often fail to understand. We pray this in your name. Amen. So in Luke chapter 12, we have uh, now come to another hard saying of the Lord Jesus. And as you might recall last week, we spent uh, a little bit of time talking about the difficult sayings of Jesus and their, their impact on our overall theology and understanding of, of how we live in this life, how we ought to live. Um, Last week, we discussed much about the need to endure faithfully uh, and, and to stay up and watch for the coming of, of Christ. And, and this week, uh, we, we similarly must turn our attention to Christ's judgment, uh, to the uh, suffering which he endures on our behalf. And, and we ought to reflect on that as, as Christ instructs us uh, here and now as, as it pertains to his mission and his ministry on the earth. Uh, these words are, are difficult for us to understand often because we live in a culture that speaks loudly and profoundly and often about how all of this stuff that Jesus says ought to be ignored and put aside and, and really done away with. Uh, the culture amplifies certain, certain uh, parts of Jesus' message uh, and other parts, uh, like the more difficult sayings here, uh, we tend to reject because they, they don't jive with our notion about who we are and, and what we are like. Uh, rather than the Bible's assessment of ourselves, we tend to take our culture's assessment of who we are and say things like, well, we don't think we're all that bad off. Maybe we need a little bit better education. Uh, maybe we need a little bit better uh, understanding of one another. And then we can get along. We will, we will jive together as a human race, and we won't really struggle with the things we struggle with now. But in the face of that, uh, Jesus makes an assessment about who we are and what we are like and that assessment uh, requires a payment, and that payment uh, will not go unpaid. And so if you would turn with me to the text now in Luke's gospel in verse 49, turn your eyes there, uh, we are going to be looking at salvation through judgment. Salvation through judgment. And the first words that Jesus uh, says now in his discourse, he gives us a purpose statement for why he came. He says, I came to cast fire on the earth and that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. One of the things that uh, we often think about when it, when it comes around Christmas time, we often reflect on the song of the angels at the announcement of the birth of Jesus, uh, where they say, they proclaim peace on earth uh, to those in whom the Lord finds favor. And we, we often amplify that part of Jesus' message as we should, because the Bible says that Jesus comes to provide peace on the earth. And yet here, uh, we come to the text where it says, uh, Jesus asked them, uh, 
Do you say, I have come to bring peace on the earth? No, I have not come to bring peace, but rather division. And now, as good students of God's word, we have to ask the question, well, did Jesus just contradict himself? Did scripture contradict itself? Uh, is there a, a disunity or a schizophrenia within God to uh, announce in one hand the coming of Jesus for peace and in another hand Jesus' own understanding of his coming in judgment? Are these things at odds with one another? And we ought to wrestle with those things because uh, Scripture can stand up to our scrutiny. Scripture can withstand every, every critical glance that we take a look at with it. And so we're going to look at this text and ask some difficult questions. Namely, uh, does God contradict himself when on the one hand he says Jesus comes to bring peace on the earth and on the other hand Jesus contradicting, let's say, the Father when he says, I have not come to bring peace but rather division. Are these statements at odds with one another? I think uh, you could uh, possibly misconstrue these words and think that these are statements that are at odds with one another and that's if you have a misunderstanding of what bringing peace to earth looks like. If you think bringing peace to earth is coming down and Jesus simply saying, hey, you've been doing it all wrong. We need to love one another better. We need to cherish one another. We need to be ethically kind to one another. And then we do those things and then everything works out for us. If you think that's what peace is like, then, uh, then these statements would be at odds with one another because then no judgment is required. But if the primary issue with us on earth is not a human problem, but a problem we have with God, uh, a disruption in our relationship with God, well then it doesn't actually matter how much stuff we do uh, after we hear about how to love each other better and going forward, uh, it actually matters that we owe a debt to God that has caused this disruption. To bring about peace in that instance wouldn't require us doing better from this point forward. Uh, to bring about peace wouldn't require us to uh, just adhere to the moral teachings of Jesus. Uh, to bring about peace in that case would require a payment be paid and a debt would be dealt with. And here is uh, the difficult part of that text. Jesus, uh, in his own words, describes the payment of the debt, the purpose of his ministry uh, there in verse 49, that he describes himself as coming to the earth to cast fire upon the earth and then he says, and would that it would already be kindled. Those, those are hard words for us to swallow. And on the one hand, it's difficult because it seems as though Jesus is saying uh, he wants judgment to just be over and done with. He wants sinners punished and that's, that's the end of it. And some, some do take this verse to mean that. And I don't think it's all that off base with the understanding of who we know God is in his holiness and in his justice. But I think uh, one of the things we have to understand about this text is it brings to mind something about Jesus' role in the coming of peace. And that is that he is the one who provides peace for us. And he doesn't do that by ignoring or doing away with God's justice. He does it by dealing with it. So when Jesus says, I came to cast fire on the earth, the Father and the Son and the Spirit act as a triune Godhead to bring about judgment on the earth because they work in unison. And also, Jesus can then turn around and say, and I wish that it were already kindled. And the very next thing he says is clarifying for what he means when he says he wishes the fire were kindled because he reflects on his own role in the judgment. He says, I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until 
it is accomplished. When Jesus comes to earth, he comes to earth and he deals with sin at its face. And he comes and he uh, removes sin from us, but he doesn't do so at the expense of sin being paid. He actually does so by, by taking on the sin on our behalf. So when Jesus says he wishes that the fire were already kindled, he is reflecting on his mission, completing the kindling of the fire in his own body for the dealing of sins. He's essentially saying, I came to cast fire on the earth. I came to bring about God's justice. And primarily in this life, I want that justice to be dealt with in my body on the tree. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. He's saying that the wrath of God will be poured out on him. He will be baptized in wrath and he is eager to accomplish his work on this earth. Now that's often difficult for us to swallow because one of the things that it implies and necessitates is that the suffering that Jesus suffered on the cross is not something that arbitrarily happened to him, uh, let's say as a side consequence to people not liking his teaching. Uh, Jesus uh, says in his own words in John's gospel, no one takes my life away from me, uh, but I lay it down of my own accord. So why does Jesus have to lay his life down? Uh, and why, why does he have to die in the way that he dies? Well, Jesus does that to bring about justice, to fulfill God's justice, uh, so that you and I could have peace with God. And that comes at great cost. It comes at a great consequence to him. Uh, it will require of him his very life. So then when he turns in verse 51 and he, he asks us the question, do you think that I've come to bring peace on the earth? No, but rather division. He's not, he's not contradicting what has been earlier stated in the gospel uh, where the angels proclaim that he has come to publish peace on the earth. Uh, he's rather saying this aspect of how I bring about peace is something that will be costly. And it, was so, it is something that will be costly because what I come to do is put a divide in the human race. I come to uh, divide the human race into those who are with God and those who are against God. I come to divide the human race into those who are uh, loyal to me, who call me Lord, and those who reject me and think that I'm a blasphemer for identifying myself with God. I come to split the human race into those who are aligned with Yahweh and his rules and his commands and his law, and those who see all of that and who hate it and who are of their father, the devil. He says uh, in these terms, how, how deep is this division going to go into humanity? Well, it's not along cultural lines. It's not along socioeconomic lines. Uh, it's not along lines that we would predict. It's going to cut to the very fabric of human society uh, because it will be division within a household. He says, verse 52, from now on, one house, uh, there's going to be five divided against three. So there's eight people in the family. Five of them are going to be on one side, three of them on the other. And three against two and two against three. If there's three people in the family, it's going to be two v one. They are going to be divided against one another. They're going to be divided amongst themselves. Uh, there's going to be internal conflict and internal turmoil into even something so tight as a, a family because that's how much more divisive the loyalty of God is. Jesus says other, in other places, if, if you uh, would love your mother, or brothers or sisters or, or father more than me, you are not worthy of me. That doesn't mean you have to hate your family. 
It means your ultimate allegiance, your ultimate pledge of loyalty goes to God. Uh, and that often, uh, Jesus warns here, will come at the expense of some relationships that we do find valuable uh, because they reject Christ. And if we're loyal to Christ, it would cause and necessitate their rejection of, of us. Some of you might know what that cost is like to swear allegiance to Christ and then to find that your friends are no longer your friends or to find that your family members don't uh, associate with you as they once did or to find that uh, aligning with Christ on certain things in our day and age costs you relationships and, and friendships in the, in the workspace. It costs you in the classroom. It'll cost you uh, in all ways of life. If you don't believe me, uh, think about all the people you work with or you go to class with or you associate with on a weekly basis and think about if you had a conversation with each and every one of those people and said something to the effect of, I believe in Jesus who saved me from my sins because I'm a sinner. I believe all that he taught while he was on earth and I believe that he is God and there is no other way to salvation. Imagine the kind of response you would get. Some people might agree with you on that. I would venture to guess not all. I would venture to guess a lot of people would take issue with that kind of a statement. You get a sense now of the kind of division that exists in humanity from something that happened 2,000 years ago in Christ's earthly ministry. He came, uh, in this sense, not to give peace, but division. And that is to say, he doesn't come to establish this universalist world order where everyone is at peace with everyone else and it's all on artificial and superficial terms. He comes to establish peace that necessitates division because there are those who are not at peace with God. And if they're not at peace with God, we can't have peace with them because God's wrath abides on them. So there's gonna be this division in humanity. Think about Jesus' followers hearing all this. And this is not the first time they've heard something like, take up your cross and follow me. You're gonna be uh, hated and despised and rejected for my name's sake. This is not the first time he's called them to that kind of discipleship. It's just another iteration of the same teaching, the same idea, which abounds throughout the whole New Testament, that being aligned with Christ will cost you in this life. And again, uh, I think some of you would know what that's like. And if you don't, uh, just live a little longer and you will. Because Christ's uh, loyalty and Christ's love, uh, many people don't like it. And many people will reject you for it. So, uh, now he's going to, uh, let's say, turn from this judgment language, and he's going to then rebuke the crowd for their failure to rightly perceive and understand the urgency of the moment. So if you, if you think about how he's about to transition, on the one hand, he's just announced the coming judgment and, let's say, his role within it, that he's going to absorb that coming judgment. But then he's going to then turn and say, and how urgent is this current moment? because you have an opportunity to settle your debt before your accuser. So he's going to turn in verse 54. He's going to say to the crowd that is around him, uh, when you see a cloud rising in the west, uh, you turn and say at once that a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be scorching heat. And so it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? The urgency of the moment is, is pregnant. The urgency of the moment is, is tight. God in Jesus 
provides an opportunity for everyone who is at odds with him to make themselves right with him. And it's only in Jesus. So if, if Jesus is talking to the crowds with, 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 to whom he's ministering and teaching to, and he says something like, you can identify all the signs of the agricultural season. You can see when it's going to come and rain on your crops. You can see when the scorching east wind is going to come and destroy your crops. You can perceive all that. Uh, isn't it easier to perceive the importance of this current moment for your final state of security? In other words, uh, these are all uh, agricultural individuals, by and large, just an agricultural society. That's why many of the parables in the Gospels are agricultural in nature. Think about the parable of the sower, uh, the parable uh, of, of bearing fruit, right? These are people who know plants and who have, by and large, made a living on securing their future interest in plants. We even found that the rich fool is one who has an abundant harvest, and that's what makes him wealthy. These are people who uh, farm, and this is their livelihood. So he's, he's saying something like this. Uh, you're wise enough to understand what's going to uh, benefit your future security in terms of material provision uh, in the rainfall. And you're wise enough to know when your future security is threatened by something like a scorching wind coming across. If you're smart enough to understand the things that you need for your momentary security, for your daily bread, you can perceive those things, you can understand them, and you're smart enough to react accordingly, you pay attention because you need to know what's going on in that situation, how much more important would it be to be right with God in terms of your eternal security and to be able to perceive how this moment relates to your ability to be secure eternally? When he comes in his earthly ministry, he comes with an offer of salvation for those who would believe in him. And there are many at this point in time who are still to reject him. In the future, they're going to uh, see him uh, and they're going to reject him and they're going to crucify him. And in some sense, uh, you can understand because he uses very insightful language. Uh, he's essentially accusing them of not being able to recognize all that he is doing here and now in his earthly ministry. So if that's true of the people uh, of his day who haven't seen all that he has done, how much more true is it of us today who have seen all of the revelation of God, all that he has accomplished, all that he has done, and all that his church teaches about him, uh, and then who look at him and say, well, the offer of repentance and the offer of grace and the offer of mercy that Jesus provides, uh, it's not urgent. It's not something that I, I need. Uh, it's not something that uh, is particularly valuable to me or, or worthwhile. If you're someone who has thought uh, for more than five seconds about what career you want to do in the future or how you can make sure that you can put food on the table for yourself and you're wise enough to look at job listings and get, jo get a job or apply to a college and get into a good school, if you're wise enough to secure your future in that kind of a way and you know when you have to apply and how to do well in an interview and how to secure your material provisions as all of us need that kind of wisdom in this life, uh, how hypocritical would it be of us to then be wise in that sense and then neglect an ultimate kind of wisdom which would require us to say that our eternal security is at risk and here is an offer of repentance and uh, a clean slate before our accuser. So here comes Jesus saying that he is the only means by which we can be saved. In his words here uh, of, of hypocritical understanding of securing the future, uh, is, is a little bit of this moment of he is it. He is the offer. He is the only one through whom we can be reconciled to the Father. There, there is no uh, other opportunity for us to be made right with God. It's only in Christ that we can be made right with God. 
And how foolish would we be if we neglected that offer? And then here in verse uh, 57, he's going to paint a little bit of a picture for us of what this judgment, uh, what it's like. He's going to say, And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you before the judge. And the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. You might say, well, that doesn't seem like it has much to do with what Jesus was just talking about. But it's an illustration or a a pictorial representation of all that he has just discussed. He's just talked in uh, verse 49 of the coming judgment and how he will receive a baptism that he is eager to undergo. Then he's turned and he said that his, his coming onto the earth is one of division, for it will split humanity. And now here he turns and he says, and this moment is pregnant with opportunity for you to settle with your accuser. In, in the illustration, it goes like this. Uh, judge for yourself what is right. Or you could say, judge for yourself what is intelligent. What would be a wise thing to do? Let's say you owe a massive amount of debt to someone. And your accuser has a period of time between when they tell you you owe the debt and when they're going to drag you before the judge to exact that debt from you. Let's say you have this period of time in which you have peace with your accuser. They have an opportunity to settle with them, let's say, out of court. You should settle with them on the way. Because if you owe them the debt and they take you to the judge, the judge will exact from you the payment that is required. And in those days, uh, to go before a judge for a debt and to be thrown in prison, you might be asking, well, how do you pay back a debt if you're in prison? And the way that they would uh, intrigue you to be able to pay back the debt is they would take you to prison, uh, they would beat you in prison, and they would beat you so much that your family and friends might be motivated to earn and pay back the debt for you so that you would be let out of prison. And here he's saying, well, what would be better? To settle out of court with your accuser or to hope that the judge somehow is an unrighteous judge and doesn't tell you that you have to pay the debt which you owe. Implicit in this teaching is that there is a debt that we owe. Implicit in this teaching is there is a day of judgment and there is a judge who judges justly. Imagine an unjust judge. Well, then you, you could gamble it. You could risk it. Uh, you could risk going before your accuser in the courtroom and hope that the judge is going to let you off, that the judge is going to understand your situation and think, well, this accuser has a really unrighteous standard by which he has held you, and I dismiss your debt. Nowhere in this illustration are any of those ideas present because the assumption is that the debt is validly owed, the debt ought to be paid, and the debt can be demanded, hence why the judge is going to exact the debt from you. And what is the hope of escape by if you don't settle and you go to the judge? I tell you, verse 59, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. The, the term there that uh, is, is translated penny, um, it refers to the smallest coin in, in the Greek culture. Uh, so penny, obviously, in, in the American culture would be the smallest coin that we have. But in terms of value, a penny is actually too valuable to translate this term. Uh, uh, this, this would be like more equivalent to one-eighth of a penny. So you're going to be kept in prison not until the last penny is owed, but until the last eighth of a penny 
is owed. You're going to be held in prison uh, essentially until every drop of debt has been paid, and not a moment sooner. And you might be thinking, well, if I'm in prison, how do I pay the debt back? And that's what you should be thinking, because in the first century, often by the time you went to prison, uh, you stayed in prison, and there was really no hope to pay the debt back. It was often the case that people would die in prison once they had gone, uh, because there's no hope of earning a salary and paying back a debt in prison. It's just kind of how it is. You might say that's unfair. Uh, that's as just as they could get it in the first century. And in some sense, uh, it's very just to uh, be punished for something that you, in fact, owe. And this language uh, is, I think, very difficult for us to understand today uh, because we question some of the primary assumptions present in the text that have just been brought before us. And that's not, by the way, unique to us. Uh, the Jewish people question all of these assumptions just the same. But Jesus still assumes them for the sake of his illustration. So consider, for example, the assumption that we actually owe a debt to God. Uh, implicit in, th in this text is that we do owe a debt. And I suppose, given our modern culture, that, that, that requires some explanation or some defending or maybe just some elaboration to how that all works. Because uh, if you were to survey the average American individual and you were to ask them something like, uh, do you think God is angry with you? The average person, I don't think, would say, yes, I owe him a massive debt and I'm actually eager to try to deal with it. Uh, the average person would say, I think, you know, God's generally pleased with me. I think I'm doing well before God. And whatever inconsistencies or misgivings I might have in my life, uh, surely, surely God will understand. Uh, surely God will be okay with it. And surely, surely, he will allow me into whatever heaven looks like, whatever it is, and there should be no punishment at all. Well, this is a little bit what it's like to have been a Jewish person in the first century, because remember, John the Baptist has to tell them, don't say to yourself, we are children of Abraham. God can make from these very stones children of Abraham. What he's saying is, don't think you're righteous by your genealogical uh, birth. Or if we can say it today, don't think you're righteous because of where you live in the Western world and all of the enlightenment that you've experienced in the last 2,000 years, knowing that, for example, slavery is wrong. Yes, slavery is wrong. But that doesn't make us any less sinful than generations which have come before us. Uh, we, for example, as a generation and as a culture, have completely abandoned any semblance of a sexual ethic at all. And we don't think that sex is particularly problematic and, and free sex and, and having sex with whoever you want. We don't think that's particularly a problem. Uh, and that is to our shame and to our detriment. We don't, we don't agree on that as a standard of sin. And the question is, well, if we're going to say that slavery was wrong, but we're going to then also turn around and say, well, sex outside of marriage isn't so wrong. Well, then the question is, well, what, what is our standard by which we are judging things as right or wrong? Is it our vast learning? Is it scientific consensus? Is it democratic approval? What is it? What is it that we judge all things by? If you were a Jew and Jesus asked you the question, how do you judge your righteousness before God? Uh, they would say something like, we are the covenant people of God. And that would be a, a good start, right? But the problem is the covenant has requirements. The Jewish people aren't just to be in the covenant. They are to be obedient to the covenant and thus remain in the covenant. Because if they break the covenant, there remains curses and upon curses upon curses for those who are outside the people of God. And you might say, uh, if I was to ask you the question, well, what gives you hope before God? 
If you are a believer or you profess to be a Christian, uh, what, what is the basis of your hope before the divine? Is it his, let's say, shifting standard that happens to shift with every 50 years of American culture? Is it the hope or the longing or the, the anticipation that maybe God is as inconsistent in terms of judging morality as you are? That he happens to have the same moral uh, barometer for righteousness and sin that you do? Where all the things that you do happen to escape judgment and all the things that others struggle with that you don't struggle with happen to be all the sins that God would be upset with? For instance, slavery. Uh, we look at our culture and we say, we don't struggle with that. We must be so much more righteous. And yet uh, we have so many things that we're doing that uh, would, be, would have been appalling to generations past. So what is, the, what is the standard of righteousness? If you're a Christian, you would have to say the standard of righteousness is whatever God said it was. That's kind of how God plays uh, in, in the rule book of creation. He speaks, and so it is. He speaks the world into creation. He speaks the first man into creation. He, he forms the woman from the man. He speaks commands to them. And then he expects them to be obedient to those commands. And he judges them according to either their obedience or their disobedience. In the case of Adam and Eve eating of the fruit, he judges them according to their disobedience and kicks them out of the garden. If that's true, then well, what is the, the standard of righteousness that exists by the time Jesus is around? Well, the only hope of salvation, really, is to be inside the covenant people of God. That's the only hope of salvation. So if you're a, a Gentile, you are by default on the outside. You are as kind of a, a first standard situation outside of God's covenant people. But that's not just true of Gentiles. Actually, the, the, as Paul will make clear, there's really two human races. There's those who are in Adam and there are those who are in Christ. And if you're in Adam, well, you're outside of the covenant people of God because Adam is a sinner, and in Adam, all die. So then the other option to be saved is to be identified with Christ, to be obedient to him, to find your safety and your comfort and your strength and your hope in him. And that is exactly the kind of thing Jesus is getting at here in the text. In the first century, really uh, no different, was really no different from us. Uh, because everyone in the first century had an, an exemption to the kind of sins which they thought as particularly sinful. For example, if you look at the Roman gods and goddesses, uh, they happened to reflect Romans' sense of morality pretty well. Right? They, they thought that sex was not really a big deal. They thought divorce wasn't really a big deal. But they did think honor was a pretty big deal, so the gods shouldn't dishonor themselves or the gods get punished for that. And so that was Roman morality. Well, what is objective and ultimate morality? Because in our day, we, we also have that same arbitrary kind of moral judgment. Morality uh, can be summed up, if you want a simple standard, uh, in the Ten Commandments. Um, but, but more than that, you could even go to the New Testament and just ask, what does Jesus say I should do to be righteous? And you could go to the Sermon on the Mount, and you could ask yourself hard questions like, have I ever lusted before? Thus, I am guilty of breaking the law. Have I ever hated someone in my heart before? Thus, I am guilty of murder and breaking the law. Have I ever coveted something that wasn't mine? Thus, I am guilty of envy and boast and discontentment and really denying the goodness of God and his blessings to me. And therefore, I have broken covenant with God. I am in disunion with him. Those are just three of the kinds of examples Jesus gives. And then we can ask the question, well, if we've broken the law, by what means do we have to reconcile ourselves to God? What is the way by which we can escape 
debt, escape punishment, and deal with this outstanding debt that we do, in fact, owe. Well, Jesus says it is for that very purpose that he comes into the world. He came to cast fire on the earth and really to be baptized by the same fire that he comes with on the earth, meaning he comes to absorb the wrath of God, which is poured out on sinful and wretched humanity, and take it upon himself. And then he says something to the effect of, well, uh, then if you're found in me, you are safe. And if you are outside of me, you are unsafe. Uh, this is the only way to settle with the accuser, to settle with the one whom you owe a debt to. Because if you try to pay for that debt in any other way, uh, you will never pay it. Scripture makes clear that God is not a God who is just just, but he is also holy, which means his standard of justice is 100% perfection. And so as you sit now living uh, more than three seconds on this earth, you have uh, accumulated some amount of debt by which you owe. And you can ask yourself the question, if I just had to pay the debt that I've amassed from birth until now, could I pay it? Could I pay going into the future? If I was perfectly righteous from this point on going forward for the rest of my life, well, then I would meet but not exceed God's standard of righteousness, and I would still have accumulated a whole host of debt from now from, from birth until now. And I would never be able to pay back all that debt because God's standard to exceed his standard would require not just obedience, but perfect obedience for all of our lives. That would be meeting his standard of righteousness, not exceeding it. And to get out of debt, you can't just meet uh, your livelihood expenses from this moment forward. You have to be able to make a surplus of income so that you can pay back all your extra income towards the debt which you owe. And we can't do that as sinful creatures. We, we owe more than we could possibly ever pay back, and we have really no means of getting into the positive. Uh, we are a people who owe a debt which is outstanding for us, and there's no hope for us to pay it. Thus, Jesus is the good news which answers the problem which Scripture raises. Not only is God a patient God, slow to punish people for their sin, he's also a saving God who sends his Son to redeem the lost humanity unto himself. This is a key teaching in scripture. And if we, if we pollute God's justice and holiness, and we try to say things like, God isn't mad at that sin that I struggle with or this sin that you struggle with, we really, we really lose the meaning of why Jesus came at all. Uh, there's plenty of other instructions in the ancient world that give us good moral standards to live by. There's plenty of other texts, even in the Jewish rabbis and teachings, that tell us how we ought to treat one another better. Jesus doesn't come ultimately as a moral instructor for our lives. He comes as a savior for those who are otherwise under the curse of God. So then the offer becomes something like this. If you are outside of God, outside of favor with him, you need to be found in Christ, inside of him, because Christ absorbs the payment on our behalf. You might say, well, what, what exactly is that like? How does that work? It works a little bit what you would think it works like. If you owe a debt as you go to settle with your accuser, well, then the accuser offers a bargain with you, a, a plea deal, some settlement outside of court and says something like, if you do this, then I will take away your debt. And in this case, uh, who absorbs the debt 
is, is none other than the accuser himself who must absorb the debt. If you owe a debt to someone and they cancel the debt, it doesn't really just disappear into thin air. The person who you owed it to has absorbed the debt which you owed to them previously. The debt must be paid. The question is really just who's going to pay it. So it is with God's justice. It doesn't, it's not that you have sin and then God can decide to wipe away your sin and then the sin just poof disappears into thin air. But as Jesus says, uh, he has to be baptized in the wrath of God to make possible the offer of redemption. If the sin is not poured out on you, the debtor, the sin has to be absorbed by the accuser, which is Christ. And it has to be paid by him in full. And you can ask, when does that payment happen? It happens on the cross, where he pays for every sin that has ever been owed to him for all those who would be found in him. Christ uh, then comes as a, not to offer some universal peace to humanity, uh, but he comes to offer a specific and perfect and final offer of peace for those who would take advantage of the offer. For those who would look upon Christ and the cross and would say, I identify with him, I recognize my sin, and on the way to my judgment, your life, I'm going to settle with my accuser before I am found on the day of judgment. I'm going to settle with my accuser, and, and what does that settlement look like? It looks something like what you would think it would look like if you were getting dragged to court by an accuser. You should be pleading on the way for mercy and for forgiveness and for them to pardon you for your iniquity, pardon you for your debt. Well, that's what it looks like when you plead with God for mercy and forgiveness. The difference is we have this assurance that when we plead for mercy, we will receive mercy. So it's only those who never plead for mercy that don't receive mercy. And Jesus is saying, well, that's a hypocritical thing to do. You can judge the times and the seasons, the winds and all that comes with it. And yet when you're getting dragged to court, you're not smart enough to plead for mercy on the way over. So it is if you live this life and you say something like, the debt, whatever it is that I owe, isn't so great. I don't really need to plead for mercy. I don't need to be found forgiven because whatever the debt is, I'll talk my way out of it at judgment or I'll deal with it in some other means at judgment. I will try to settle it in some other way. Well, this is, this is a, a foolish kind of thing to do. And we might ask maybe a different question that this text also brings up, which is if Jesus needs to die for the payment of sins to be satisfied, uh, doesn't that uh, somehow uh, entail that everyone in all the earth has their debts paid for, therefore there's no more debt that's owed? It really depends where your loyalties lie. Uh, Jesus comes to bring peace, uh, as the scripture says, with those uh, in whom goodwill is found, as the angels announce. Uh, it's, it's a little bit uh, like what happens at wartime. Uh, if, if you were in uh, Nazi Germany and you were running a concentration camp on the day that the Allied forces came in and set that concentration camp free, well, it really depends on who you are inside the concentration camp, whether that is a day of judgment or a day of salvation. If you are found with the Nazi forces uh, possessing the concentration camp and resisting the allied forces and committing iniquity to uh, other image bearers of Christ, well then you would be punished and judged on that day. And yet that same judgment would be the salvation of those who are under the rule of the Nazi oppressors. Salvation always comes through judgment. 
If you think about it in the Old Testament, when the whole earth is sinning always, and God looks out over all humanity and he says, every thought and intention from their heart was only evil continuously. It's hard to imagine a worse state for humanity to be in. God resolves to judge the earth by the pouring out of water to destroy it. And through that judgment saves the earth by means of sparing Noah and his family and allowing them to repopulate and be fruitful and multiply and refill the earth. You might ask the question, how is it that Noah earns the right and favor before God to be saved? And it really, Noah doesn't do much at all in that regard. As scripture makes clear, Noah is just as sinful as the rest of humanity. The difference is when Christ comes to pay debt, he takes Noah's debt on him as well. And that wasn't true for the others who die in their debt because they are punished at the outpouring of the water. Salvation always comes through judgment, and that judgment is either on Christ or it's on us. And then you can be wise and ask the question, well, if, if there's an offer for salvation, if there's an offer of escape from this judgment, why would I not take it? That's kind of what Jesus is asking here in the text. Isn't it the wise and shrewd and prudent thing to do to take the offer of salvation while I offer it? If we think that this judgment comes at really no cost to Christ, I think we miss it. One of the things that is true in scripture is that the punishment on Christ breaks him. It kills him. Uh, this, uh, you can picture it this way. Uh, often in the movies, uh, when there's uh, someone in danger uh, and then someone, some superhero comes in and saves them. Uh, if it's a superhero with, with super strength or invulnerability or something like that, it doesn't really mean much when the superhero jumps in the way of the bullet or takes the car or takes the train because, well, it doesn't hurt them. It doesn't hurt them at all. Uh, so that, that's one way in which we can, I think, incorrectly conceive of Jesus' standing in our place. We can conceive of him taking the bullet like Superman takes a bullet. It doesn't really hurt him, and he should really just stand in the way. Right? It's not going to do him any damage. He's not risking anything to do that. I think another way, uh, a more appropriate way, uh, given what the scriptural evidence is, is to see the escape from judgment that we get as something that in afflicts Christ unto death. It actually costs him something, his very life. Uh, at the end of uh, the Lord of the Rings movie, the very first one, The Fellowship of the Ring, there's uh, a character who's kind of got this redemption arc going on in the movie. Uh, and what happens at the very end of the movie is the hobbits who are running around with the ring they're trying to escape the incoming assault from the forces of evil. The Urukai have overrun them, they're chasing them out, and all these hobbits are about to die because they can't defend themselves. And then you have this character, Boromir, who comes in and who essentially draws away the attention of the attackers to himself. And he does so not like a Superman who just takes the bullets and walks away. He actually does so at the cost of his very life. His sacrifice, his taking the arrows on the hobbit's behalf and allowing them to escape is much closer to what Christ taking your place on the cross is like. It doesn't cost him nothing. It costs him everything. But he loved you so much that he found it fit and pleasing in the sight of God and in his own goodwill to set about living his life on this earth in such a way that he could pay your penalty for you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son into the world. If you want to know what the love of God looks like, 
You look no further than the incarnation of Christ, which is the very purpose of it, is to reconcile the world unto God. God loves the world in this kind of a way that he sends his son into the world to save it. And that is really the importance and the the importance of the moment to take redemption seriously. If you're here right now, under the sound of my voice and considering these two options, these two paths, to take the debt upon yourself or to take the debt that Christ offers, then you really are in no different of a position than the crowd in the first century who hears Jesus' teaching. Because one thing Jesus does on the cross, which is fascinating and theologians wrestle with how exactly it works and all the rest, Jesus says he pays the full payment for all sins that would ever be committed for those who would be found in him. Which means even you, having not yet lived your full life, uh, if you are found in Christ, he on the cross in the past would have paid for every sin you could have ever committed now, in the past, and in the future. I don't know exactly how all that works. God and his sovereignty can figure that out way faster than I can. But here's what is true. Is that Christ on the cross makes something happen that is critical in redemptive history and the offer still stands. So you in this moment right now as you're thinking about these things, uh, you can be reminded of the goodness of Christ's sacrifice on your behalf if you are found in him. Or if you're not sure if you're found in him, uh, the offer still stands. And you should take the offer while it still stands. You should settle with your accuser out of court. Because by the time you get dragged to the judgment, and really no one knows when they will face the judgment, you will be found wanting, you will be thrown into prison, and you will never be let out. So why not take the deal? Why not be found in Christ, hidden in him? Everyone who builds their house on a firm foundation will withstand the storm. Every other foundation is sinking sand. It will not withstand the judgment. So take heed, be wise, take the offer that Christ offers, and don't settle for anything else. Don't try to pay your own way. To do so would not only be arrogant and prideful, it would also be foolish, given all that we know about who God is. I pray that you would consider that. If you're a believer, and you are found in Christ, you can take heart in this way. The offer of Christ's substitution on your behalf is something that remains abidingly true even for the sins that you struggled with this week, this morning, and the sins you're going to struggle with next week, and the months following, and the years following, and the rest of your life. Which means when you struggle with sin, uh, you, and you ask yourself the question, oh, that was a sin, surely God uh, is not happy with me anymore. Maybe I'm outside of favor with him. Maybe I'm not worthy of him. Maybe I shouldn't confess that sin because that was one straw too many. And you can uh, be reminded of this same truth, that if Jesus has paid your debt, there's no more debt that you owe. You can be at right relationship with God because actually it never depended on your working out of holiness or your observation of God's law. It actually only depended on you being found in Christ and his perfect holiness and his observation of God's law. Now that doesn't mean you shouldn't aspire to grow into the image of Christ as the rest of scripture teaches, but you should just know that your justification before God isn't dependent on it. And so no sin that you commit now and in the future should ever uh, impair your ability to commune with the Father. That is why, as a church, we are trying to regularly practice the confession of sin when we gather for worship. It is because confessing sin is actually the very means by which we are right with God and not a hindrance to our rightness with God. Every sin that we have, we ought to confess because Christ has already paid for it. So we can confess it freely, we can confess it openly, 
we can confess it quickly because the payment's already made and all that is waiting to happen is for us to acknowledge that we are in fact already right with God because of the work of Christ. So if you're a believer, you can take heart in that and encouragement from that because that is exactly what Jesus has accomplished for us, a security unlike any other. And in all these things, we are reminded of the glorious truth of God, that he is not a just judge only, but he's also a merciful savior who holds out salvation to all who would believe in him. And for those who are found in him, there remains no more reason why we cannot be found holy and blameless before him on the day of judgment. Because the only person who will stand are those who God upholds. And God is pleased, brother and sister, to uphold you before his glorious grace. Let's pray. Father, you are a good father. You are a God unlike any other God in the rest of the earth, in the rest of the nations, and any other conception of what God might be like. Because not only are you perfectly holy, which we would never conceive of, but also you are merciful. You are a covenant-keeping God. And Lord, we thank you that you have been pleased to make a covenant with your son for the redemption of sin, for the earning of righteousness before you, and that all of that actually doesn't depend much on us at all because it has been totally established by, completed by, and finalized by you. Lord, we thank you for your love on display in Christ. And we pray that as we are reminded of that glorious truth for all those who are found in you and hidden in you, that you would make us celebrate with joy and alive in our hearts to worship you rightly in response. And Lord, yet I also pray for those who are not found in you, for all who may hear these words that Jesus here proclaims, that they would be quick to settle their debt, that you would impress upon each and every one of us our need for a savior, and then cause us to ask the question, do we have a savior? Are we found in him? And would you encourage those of us who need encouragement and reminder of that salvation which we have in Christ? And for those of us who don't have that salvation in Christ, would you please never let us rest until we have assurance of pardon through the blood of Christ on the cross only, the only place where peace is found. We thank you for that offer of mercy. Pray this all in your name. Amen.